Welcome now to Culture at Work on the Business Radio Network, presented by Crest Insurance with host Matt Nelson. All right. Well, uh, welcome, welcome, welcome everyone today to uh, our episode of Culture at Work in Tucson, proudly presented by Crest Insurance Group. Uh, and the goal of our show is where we learn from and celebrate the local businesses, nonprofit organizations, and leaders uh, whose culture have stood the test of, of Tucson time. So I'm your host, Matt Nelson, and joining me here at uh, Tucson Business Radio X Studios is a fantastic panel of guests to talk about the role of mentorship in the workplace. Uh, for those of you who don't already know, the month of January is National Mentoring Month. Uh, it's an initiative dating back almost two decades, spearheaded by the Harvard School of Public Health, uh, with the goal of recognizing and honoring mentors who have helped us each grow as people, professionals, and members in our community. Um, so I'm pleased to welcome our very first guest, uh, my friend and colleague, Corey Williams from Crest Insurance Group. For those of you who uh, Corey's name is familiar, you might recall memories of an obscure basketball event called the NCAA Final Four. Um, I'm biased by virtue of age, but uh, I'd argue, and, and this is something I say as a, as a proud Sun Devil, but I'm, uh, I'd argue that it's one of the best Arizona basketball teams of all time. So, uh, Corey, welcome to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about how you found your way to Tucson? Well, thank you. And obviously, uh, the Wildcats played a big part in me coming to Tucson. I originally grew up, as we discussed, uh, suburbs of Chicago. I was recruited uh, heavily by a lot of different universities, and Arizona was one of my top schools. I came out, took a visit, and the rest, as they say, is history. Um, ended up signing with the Wildcats, played out here from 92 to 96, um, played uh, internationally for about a dozen years, but I always maintained a home here in Tucson, uh, starting in back as far as maybe 2000 when I first bought my house. So I've been here for quite a long time. But yeah, Arizona basketball uh, was the initial move for me. And then I uh, really do like Tucson as opposed to living in the suburbs of Chicago. Um, it's a nice area. I kind of grew up here, so to speak, and uh, been here ever since. So it's been a great, a great trip for me. Nice, nice. Thank you, Corey. Well, to my right, uh, I'm also pleased to welcome Greg Deanna. He's uh, the Director of Public Relations for the Pima County Joint Technical Education District, uh, or as you might better know it, the Pima County JTED. Um, Greg's another proud Arizona Wildcat, uh, and he's spent really his career supporting Tucson's education system through public relations and media experience. Uh, Greg and I actually have had the pleasure to connect through the JTED's Business and Industry Council. Um, so welcome to the show, and, and can you tell the audience a bit about your experience in Tucson and, and also why you focus so intently on education? Well, thank you. You know, I came, uh, my dad was Air Force, I was an Air Force brat, but Tucson was always home and also fell in love with it and uh, really not a big fan of cold weather. So my wife and I, uh, she's also a native Tucsonan, so we decided to, you know, plant roots in Tucson and we love the community. And one of my other passions is education. And I came up through the ranks, and thanks to a mentor of mine that we're going to be talking about later, um, you know, really found my career in broadcasting and public relations and media relations. And I found out that I could put my talents to use in promoting public education. And that's what I've done for Sunnyside Unified School District, the University of Arizona, Pima Community College, and for the past 12 years, Pima County JTED. And so specific to the JTED, actually, and I, so when you made the jump from Sunnyside, I know Sunnyside has a JTED cohort, and I know JTED has been closely affiliated with uh, with uh, Pima Community College. Was there a specific thing that dragged that got you over to the JTED, or was it just kind of a natural progression? Well, actually, uh, I was working for the University of Arizona at the Arizona Cancer Center, and I helped prepare for their 30th anniversary. And uh, the opportunity opened up at Pima JTED. There was a brand new district, and it was this was a chance to be at the, the table when we built something from the ground up. So I always compared it to we were building an airplane as it was taking off. We were still <laughs> nailing on the wings and the tail, and, and we were already leaving the runway. And so it was a very exciting time, but it was also my chance to be on the ground floor of something uh, that really does great work for the students in, in the Tucson area. All right. Thanks, Greg. And we'll definitely dive into JTED um, a bit later in the show. Um, and so uh, now, last but certainly not left, uh, certainly not least, to my left uh, is uh, another friend and colleague, Carlos Chavez, uh, with an organization that uh, we're certainly both very passionate about. So Carlos is the uh, marketing and recruitment director for Big Brothers Big Sisters of Southern Arizona. Um, you know, and given the the lean nature of most nonprofit organization, that title means he wears a lot of hats over there. 
uh, in the business of supporting Tucson's youth. So I've been fortunate to see him at work throughout the organization over the years. And, uh, you know, you're definitely the real deal when it comes to mentorship and leadership. Uh, but that's kind of been the case throughout your, your entire career in the nonprofit sector and especially around youth, hasn't it, Carlos? Yeah, definitely. So I have been working in youth development, child welfare, uh, mentorship for the last 12 years uh, through Arizona's Children's Association and now Big Brothers Big Sisters of Southern Arizona. And it's really just something that is that I feel strongly about that people and youth in the community really just need that one person in their life to make an impact and really drastically change the, the future or the outcome of where they want to go. Um, Big Brothers Big Sisters does that in a strong way by matching a youth in our community with a volunteer mentor who's really just there to guide them and show them something that they might not be able to experience otherwise. Kind of similar to the JTED program to where they might not get those career uh, trainings at home or have the opportunity to have somebody in their family that might have that experience. Being able to provide that to somebody in a youth in the community is huge. I agree. I agree. I, you know, like you, I've got a uh, I've got a little that uh, that I mentor. Uh, my little is at Amphi High School, and um, you know, it's it's crazy to think of, but uh, trying to put myself in his position, especially right now, as fast as the the world seems to be moving, uh, the importance of having somebody to kind of help slow things down a little bit and uh, get you to maybe back off of the sites a bit and, and look around at, at what's happening around you instead of just the day-to-day of, of what you're doing, you know, especially in high school. It's a pretty busy time. So uh, that mentor program, it's it's been really impressive to see it at work. And, and just over the years that I've been working with my little, as I'm sure is the case with yours, it's it's been impressive to see him develop uh, as a young man. I'm, I'm excited for what he's going to do in the community. Yeah, it's exciting. This year is actually going to be our first graduating class. So we've been doing it for four years now, so it's really exciting to see where these youth are going to go and what they're going to do. We had our Voice of Potential that was just honored at our National Mentoring Month celebration last week, and she let everybody know there that she just got accepted to the U of A, and she's really excited about that, and it might not be something that she would have thought of before she started working with her volunteer mentor. Agreed. Agreed. Well, so... um, I guess before we dive straight into mentorship, uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about each of our organizations and, and kind of how the organization approaches mentorship in the community, because really the the topic for this month is mentorship in the workplace and, and the goal of, uh, you know, kind of employee development through mentorship. Um, so, Corey, maybe share a little bit about your experience over at Crest, because that was a pretty big change for you coming from uh, collegiate athletics, professional basketball, uh, international basketball, uh, yeah. and then jumping into the insurance industry. It's, it's quite the leap. Yeah, it was definitely um, a different – it was a change of pace for me. Uh, I, can, I refer to it as straight life. You know, when you're playing <laughs> pro ball, there's only two days of the week. There's game day and the day before the game. Other than that, Monday through Friday doesn't exist. So you don't have the conventional business week. You're just practicing and playing games, and then there's the off season, and that's it. And then going to the traditional 40-hour work week and corporate America, it was definitely after 12 years of living that lifestyle, it was a change. And I had people that I could reach out to. Um, It wasn't anything that was too difficult, but it took some adjusting. And I think for me, um, having the insurance industry explained in a way that made sense to me what it was, um, the biggest appeal for me was I was used to kind of being my own guy. I I had contracts. I played professional basketball. I was paid what I was worth. So a commission-based industry made sense to me. I was already competitive. I already, we use the phrase, you know, you eat what you kill. Mm -hmm. That's the way basketball worked for me. That's the way sports works. So it was a natural progression for me going from athletics to insurance where, hey, I'm my own guy. I do whatever I want every day. Get out here and make my own success. For me, um, that was the appealing side of it. Now, once, you know, learning the industry, getting licensed, and then being able to sell, um, that was the second side of it. Um, Salespeople aren't necessarily born. Sometimes they're developed and created. So for me to learn how to sell, it's like, okay, these are the parts of your personality. These are your traits. This is how you apply it and convert it to money. That's where the mentorship takes place, how to sell. Um, Everyone's tough techniques and methods are different. So what was great for me is when I first got to Crest, there was a guy by the name of Hank Peck who was, he'd been in insurance for a long time. And he took so much joy in taking me to lunch and just giving me the little bits of knowledge and kind of giving me the roadmap on how to be a broker and what his, you know, trial and error, 30 years of trial and error for him 
it was just like a, it was like a cheat sheet. You know, here, this is what you do. This is what you don't do. And um, he took a lot of pleasure in uh, getting me off to a good start. And I've been very fortunate in life, whether it was playing for Coach Olson or some of my coaches internationally or running into Hank Peck and Cody Ritchie. I've always had people that were more than happy to take the time uh, to get me off to a good start. And I think that's the key. It's a selfless act, really. It's just you don't have to do it, but there are certain people out there who are really made for it. They right. love to do that. So I've been fortunate in that regard. You know, it's kind of funny that you bring up uh, Hank is, uh, you know, and, and to the listener, I'm I'm also in the insurance industry, as, as you know, as I said in the introduction, and I've been doing it for about 15 years. But so Hank is a, a bit of an industry legend down here in Tucson. Um, in a lot of ways, I, I don't know if I don't know if Lute would love the comparison of being uh, being the Hank Peck of basketball. Maybe Hank is the Lute Olson of, of it's insurance. It's quite possible. Quite possible. But um, but so you know, both of them. Interestingly, you've got this this generational span, right? Where you've got people who are coming into something. Uh, in the case of college basketball, you've got Lute that's been doing it for decades and every year um and, and really with any college basketball coach you know they, they've got people that are coming in young men that are coming in that are 17 18 19 years old and they're as a coach they're not mm -hmm. um so how how did when you first came in obviously you come from illinois to a new new area um you're in a basketball program you've got a coach that uh, everybody talks about the millennial problem and communicating across generations you've got a coach that you know, in a lot of ways is a, is a mentor, but also is, is coming from a different perspective than you are. How, how did, how is that effectively a gap that's bridged? Well, you know, basketball and, and I think sports in general, it's a unifying situation and you're right. I mean, in most situations in college sports, you have a 50 to 60 or maybe even a 70 year old white male who's coaching and developing teenage men mostly some predominantly minority men. So you're thinking, okay, where's the connection? Well, the connection's football. The connection's basketball. The connection's baseball. The connection is a family atmosphere where someone is taking the time to illustrate realities and principles because that's all really it is. It's just, hey, this is how you play successful basketball. You don't have to like me. I like country western. You like rock and roll. You know, I like veal parmesan. You like hot. We don't have anything in common. I'm a 65-year-old white guy, but I'm teaching you some principles in the real world that you're going to come up against and you need to be able to understand them and interpret them and navigate them. And what you don't realize at the time is, you know, coach is tough or, you know, my boss is tough. But the things that they're teaching you, they're universal. So that's the common ground is you want to become good at your craft. I'm giving you some principles and ideals that will help you. Now you can take or leave them. That's the part that's always interesting. Take it or leave it. You know, mentoring is kind of that way where you're like, this is the reality. If you don't do X, then Y. If you do Y, then then X. And then you step back and you let the person experience it on their own. Whether you have success in sports or you have success in sales, that's really not on the mentor. The mentor's job, I think, is to provide the, the, the structure and show you the roadmap. Hey, here's the map. You can go left. You can go right. My experience is left is better. Then, you know, and you, you give them that. And then a lot of people will come back and tell you you get the feedback. But um, the connection for the generational gap between, you know, demographics is always the sport. The coach, his goal is to be successful. The mentor's goal is to be successful. So that unifies them. Now it goes in terms of by what method? Well, who's the only one with experience? The coach. So it's the coach's method. And then the coach's method, you look back and you're like, man, I'm so glad I played for him. I went to two Final Fours. I, went, I got a Pac-12 champion, Tac-10 championships. I went on, some of our guys went on to the NBA to make millions. And they will tell you in a heartbeat, it was because of Coach Olsen. In terms of skill, there's a thousand, thousands of guys playing college ball, but then there's only a handful of us learning at the foot of someone at his level. So then our lives are changed forever. Their children's lives are changed forever. They've got generational wealth now because they spent 48 months with Lute Olson. And that's um, on the far end of mentorship. That's an extreme example. Sure. But I think you can apply it to most situations. Agreed. Well, you know, actually, it's funny. As you were talking about becoming a professional in your craft, I, I, naturally, it just made sense to think about J-Ted because that's, I mean, really, 
JTED's mission, and, and maybe Greg, you can elaborate on it a little bit. Sure. But, you know, it's basically taking adjunct faculty, people who are experts in their craft, and bringing them into an educational environment to share their craft with young adults who are interested in, in if nothing else, learning about that field, but also possibly going on to, to become a professional in it. So can you talk a little bit about how that how that works within the Jade Head construct and, and really what you've seen from the adjunct faculty and the youth that uh, that have interacted in the Jade Head environment. Sure. Well, the uh, Pima JTED, we look to hire uh, professionals in their field versus hiring teachers and then teaching them a skill to teach. So we take professionals and teach them how to be teachers. And um, one of the benefits of that is that when students come into our program, they're learning from somebody who's been in the construction trades. They're learning from somebody who's been in the trenches, a nurse at TMC. They've, you know, they've learned from somebody who's been there and done that and still has the connections in those industries to, to make those experiences come to life for the student. And so we do mentor our teachers. Um, we have programs set up and it's being more formalized uh, even in the, the current administration with Kathy Prather has put the, an action plan into place where, uh, because your mentor, as uh, Corey alluded to, is your mentor is not your boss. You have a boss who will tell you what you're doing wrong and correct you when you need to be corrected and, and coworkers who will do that are clients. But uh, a mentor is that person who will tell you, here's your strengths that I see in you and here's where you can apply them best in you know, my opinion. And again, it is a take it or leave it situation. It's a very... Um, it's a connection, and it's kind of hard to describe. But uh, in many ways in education, it's informal. But um, our teachers, in turn, mentoring their students, they don't mentor all of them. They they will teach all of them, but they mentor just a small handful. And it's kind of the same place in the, in the workplace that people will not mentor a staff of, of teachers. They will mentor a few of them who care to listen to those pearls of wisdom that they share and give that career advice. And uh, so we really see it as something that just continues giving. We mentor our teachers, our teachers mentor our students, and it's kind of this full cycle, but we see things coming back all the time where we have had students um, kind of in dire straits where they were, you know, there's one that comes to mind. He was in an alternative high school, which is kind of your last ditch effort. You're either gonna make it or not. And uh, his construction teacher mentored him and showed him that, hey, you've got some skills and gifts that you can put to use if you choose to, if this is right for you. And uh, this kid had it rough. He did not have a good home life. He did not have a father figure. He was living on his own. And those teachers mentored him into how to become a young man and how to become a responsible adult. And this student just gobbled it up and took it. And then they helped pass off that student. So we have other mentors in industry because of their connections. Uh, that the teacher said, "Hey, you know, I've got pals working in the in the field that I can set you up with if you're interested." Uh, this particular young man that I'm thinking of said, "Sure," and they ended up with an internship at Southwest Gas. They loved him, and he's well on his way. And that's what it's really all about, you know. As a young person. You sometimes need somebody who can look inside you and say, I see something good. I see skills. I see some, you know, that you can take talent and apply it somewhere if you choose to. And uh, they help you navigate, like Corey said, those waters that can be kind of scary when you're young and you just don't know. Yeah, definitely. It's it's kind of funny because, you know, the parallel between basketball and, you know, in, in this case, a trade, right, a professional career. But it's basically by giving somebody a target that they can latch on to sure. you know, when they're when they're going through adolescence, which is a tough period, um, that you can start to see uh, once they have that target, they have that foothold to, to grab onto. You can kind of see the person start to emerge from you know, from whatever was holding them back in that situation. And you know it's funny because I, I with Big Brothers Big Sisters of Southern Arizona, I mean, the the population's a little bit younger, right? So I mean, the Mentor 2.0 program runs into the high school. Um, into the high school years, but a lot of Big Brothers Big Sisters work is done uh, while the while the the youth are in elementary school, and so you know when you're looking at that, I mean, uh, maybe you're not. What's the target look like in elementary school for a mentoring relationship? If you, if you don't necessarily have career or something like collegiate sports or something like that to, to kind of latch on to, what Carlos, what have you seen that's been effective both in your experience with Big Brothers Big Sisters, but also with Arizona's Children Association, where you work for quite some time as a mentor? Yeah, so with Big Brothers Big Sisters, we start matching at six years old, and that 
is young, but that's when youth are at their most impressionable age. And you can start to instill those goals and those principles that are going to make them successful later on in life. And really at that age, it's just being a stable, reliable adult in their life and showing them that there is somebody out there that cares and is looking out for their best intentions. And just putting that in there and displaying those positive relationship skills, all of those things that you're maybe doing just inadvertently by taking them out to the children's museum or to a basketball game or something like that. You're just showing them that somebody is there and cares and wants their best for them. That's really the be- the biggest goal that you have at that age. And then it builds up as they get older and you can start working on things with them. Um, our average match length right now is right around three and a half to four years uh, before they close. And so that's a lot of time that you can make an impression on a young child or young adult. And so being able to provide that to somebody is huge. Um, but like Matt said, the Mentor 2.0 program, it starts when they're freshmen in high school. And that's huge because kids need to start thinking about kind of what they want to do in their plan at that freshman year and even before. And so if you get a youth when they're 17 or 18, it's going to be maybe a little bit more challenging for them to develop that career plan or develop some of those skills that are going to help them to uh, be able to go on and apply for colleges or even have somebody in their corner that can help them fill out a FAFSA. I think a lot of it is just having that stable, reliable adult and somebody investing that quality time in them. Uh, that's what's really going to make an impact in a youth's life, and that's what we try and achieve with Big Brothers Big Sisters. Yeah, and you know, Corey, you have a, uh, a youth sports organization as well that you stood up. Um... Yeah, we we've started. Uh, we've run the Tucson Summer Pro League for almost sixteen, maybe sixteen, sixteen years this summer. It'll be our sixteenth year, and working with young people. And, you know, college basketball and summer basketball organizing, we got a great group of corporate sponsors and we try to target a specific need in the community. Summer basketball for basketball enthusiasts, that's when you make your development as a player. And it's interesting to listen to both the gentlemen talk because there's a difference, obviously, with amateur mentoring and professional mentoring. Professional mentoring, you're here to do a job and I'm going to teach you the best way to do it so you can take responsibility for your own success. With amateur mentoring, there's a part of it that's a little bit difficult at times because while you're pointing out your strengths, I also feel obligated to maybe point out any obstacles or roadblocks. And sometimes when you're talking with young people, those are your characteristics or your own traits. And having to relay that to a young person, I remember coaching some kids last summer, said, you're a great player, but your attitude is horrible. You, I'm here to lay out the roadmap and part of the obstacle is literally you. And how do you convey that in a a way where it hits home? You don't offend or alienate the person you're trying to mentor, but you're trying to be sincere. Well, that goes back to the first part where you have to build the culture of trust. I believe that this person is going to help me get better and is going to tell me things that are best for me, even when some of those things are internal. And then you have to show them, okay, I'm going to lead by example. Okay, that's great. But if you're mentoring a young person whose home life is different, maybe the family values are different, that can be a little bit tricky because you're like, hey, come follow me. And they're like, well, how? Well, you got to do this. You got to do this. You got to, well, they got to look at their environment. Are they accustomed to that? So, so mentoring young people is a little bit difficult because it's a little, sometimes you get led into an area where you're talking about personalities and traits and behaviors and characteristics and values, not just the do's and don'ts of basketball or the do's and don'ts of the job and telling someone this is vital to your success. The ability to listen, the ability to play by the rules, the ability to have a good work ethic, the ability to be kind to others and be respectful. When you're talking about values, well, now you've kind of crossed that mentor parenting line is blurred and that's a very difficult place to be in and it takes a special person to still want to do that yeah you know it's funny that you mentioned that um i'm thinking of uh there's an author patrick lencioni that's written a number of uh, books on kind of management in the workplace and, and things like that and he creates a pyramid of uh, basically effective communication that leads to a mentoring relationship and what's funny is the pyramid actually starts at the bottom of, um with trust 
But even below that, uh, the ground that that in his example that the pyramid sits on is is a ground of, of willingness to be vulnerable, right? Which is really a component of trust. But so as you think of, and, and this kind of be an open question, but you know, as each of you think of um, both from a from a from workplace per, workplace perspective, but maybe in kind of your own path to get where you are, um, what was it that? Can you think of a specific moment where? A, a switch flipped and you said, you know what, I'm, I trust this person enough to be vulnerable with them and talk about where I might need to develop so that we can move on to the phase of trying to identify and, and agree upon areas where I can work and develop. And maybe for this one, maybe we'll open it up with you, Greg, if you don't mind. Well, I mean, that opens up a, a whole lot. I, th I think to my personal life <clears throat> where mentors, uh, you know, reached out to me and uh, Bud Foster, I was uh, working at Channel 4, well, actually I was a student at the university and he was my adjunct professor and I was taking a writing for a radio and television class and he called me and said, you know, see me after class. And I immediately thought, what did I do wrong? Because I was the biggest class clown. I wasn't really taking life seriously and I was for sure I was in trouble because I frequently am. But then uh, he said, you can write, you can really write. And he said, would you be interested in an internship? I think I can set one up for you. Can I introduce you to some of the producers at Channel 4? And he did. And I just, that was a life-changing moment for me because I kind of realized that this was, a door was being opened. And um, I'm still friends with Bud to this day, but I remember, you know, just the different nuggets of wisdom that he gave me and guided me because newsrooms are a very tough place to work. Uh, it, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world in, in, inside a fast-moving newsroom. And um, so I did need a lot of guidance. And I was young and I was immature and I was very vulnerable at that point. But that's something where I could trust, you know, Bud to sit there and, you know, I could go to him with questions and problems and things like that. And I did for many years afterwards. But I also remember some of the things he told me to this day. And I will, re you know, I hold on to those forever. And it's something that changed my life. And I see that with our teachers in JTED as well, where students have come back to us and told us, you know, you gave me some advice. I was really going down a wrong road, but something just clicked. There was just some kind of chemistry between, you know, the teacher and student. And now that student is just, you know, doing great in life. And you've been to one of our completion ceremonies and you just see how powerful it is. I mean, not only are the parents crying, the kids cry and we cry in the audience because especially the staff at JTED, because we've seen how far some of these students have come along in life and that it's refreshing to say, wow, they just needed a little help and we all need a little help in our lives. I mean, I have to confess I'm 56 years old and I still hang on to one of my mentors. I still call him every now and then. So, I mean, you never really outgrow mentoring either. So. Agreed. How about you, Corey? Can you think of? Well, I've never really looked at someone and, and felt like oh, there was a relationship where I could trust. I mean, obviously, I grew up, my dad was a huge influence on my life, and I went from his house to being on the U of A basketball team. So two alpha males at the top. I just It was kind of very similar for me. It's like serving in the military for 25 years. It's like you go from one guy giving you orders to this new guy. The only difference is Lou's hair was white. That was the only difference. <laughs> so um, I've always been the kind of guy that um, – you know, sees the $5 million house and walks up to the front door, knocks on the door and says, hey, what do you do for a living? And will you teach me how? Right. And that's what I do. I identify successful people. And what I found is most often successful people will be more than happy to share the how. Then it's up to me to decide if I want to do that or not, or can I do that or not? But I've very, been very inquisitive. I look at the people who I feel are uh, doing things that I want to do or having a level of success that I want, and then I engage them and ask them how. So I've been more of an aggressive person. I haven't really went out and had a relationship that's developed into a mentorship. I've chosen my mentors based on initially getting to see them and then asking them how. And a lot of them have gone ahead and said, hey, I'll be more than happy to tell you the, the secret sauce, you know, and as and you know, you follow along, you follow along. I remember playing in Belgium. As the American player, that's all I was there to do. So a two-hour practice, I had to fill 22 hours of my day. So I would stay after practice for an additional two hours and just shoot. And, of course, I was paid way more than the Belgian players because I was more valuable. And there were a couple of Belgian players that wanted to get better. And they noticed that when practice was over, everybody went to the locker room and I stayed out there. And then one day they stayed out there and they watched. They said, you keep practicing. I said, yes, this is my livelihood. This is how I pay my mortgage. 
I need to be much better than you guys on a consistent basis because it's on me to win the game on Saturday, not on you guys. That's why I'm paid the way I'm paid. And the light bulb went off in their head. The how. If I want to get to that level, this is the how. And they came to me and they said, well, listen, I've got a family, so I can't stay late. Would you mind coming early in the morning for your workout so I could join you? And I was like, you know what? It's going to make the team better. It's going to make your life better. Sure. I'll come work out my, my second workout. I'll come move it to the morning so you can be a part of it and you can get in on the how. Because as an American basketball player, the drills that I was doing, the shooting that I was doing, stuff that had been handed to me from Lute Olson and Steve Kerr, they'd never seen that stuff before. And they wanted to get better. And I was more than happy to make the adjustment to help them get better. Now, some of them uh, did get better throughout the year. Their careers went in different directions. But the point of it was I knew people had done that for me. So I was happy to do it for someone else. Yeah. You know, it's funny as you mentioned that. Cause I, so um, I was in the military for about nine years. Um, and so in, in a military environment, and it sounds like it's similar to, you know, to a, to a sports environment at, at, at a higher level, um, you know, there's an expectation that's placed upon you that if you have a question, you need to go seek it out and find it. Um, and so one of the things that became apparent to me early on was how important authenticity in your request was in that environment. So in other words, you know, anytime you go to somebody who's successful or a professional in their craft, <clears throat> it by virtue of them doing it for a very long time, I think people develop a fairly adept um, sense of when a person person is being authentic about their intent to improve um, because their time is valuable, right? Like you identified, I mean, your time on the court was very valuable. Um, so how how did you, or how do you, especially with uh, with the youth you work with now, work on you know that ability to request help authentically and follow up on it? It's interesting because we have a little reverse psychology we do. When I work with young people and kids, I understand that there's a lot of stuff they don't know, and I understand the stuff that they do know, and I make random statements that cover both categories. So what I'm trying to do is I'm creating and trying to create an atmosphere where there are they feel like there are no dumb questions. Coach will tell me anything. He talks about the stuff that I know. He talks about the stuff that I don't know. He never mentioned this. So let me go ask him because he, he's an open book. So you create the atmosphere of the open book and it fuels their, you know, inquisitiveness, I guess is the word I'm looking for. I don't know. But they'll come to you and say, hey, coach, I got a dumb question. Well, there's no dumb question. What do you want to know? On that play, am I supposed to? And you're like glad that they acknowledge their blind spot and were comfortable enough to bring it to you. And in the professional atmosphere, we don't always see that. It's like, hey, I'm not good at spreadsheets. Maybe I should just hide over here in my cubicle and not let anybody know because this is the real world. This is the adult world. And you want to go get better at a certain job skill or something. But in sports, because the ultimate goal of everyone is success, you're almost compelled to bring out your weaknesses and ask those questions even. And then, and then the other thing is with coaching, we're going to go over the basics the first month of practice. We're going to go over the basics in month two, month three, month four. If you come to me in month six, with the same question, then I know you're not paying attention. So right. some coaches get irritated with that. But yet still, they know my team's only as good as our weakest player. And it's the same in business. So stepping out of the shadows, having enough confidence and trust to kind of be vulnerable, like you said, and lower and, and ask that stupid question, that's a difficult position for a lot of young people to be in. I've had young people ask me, basic questions, life skill questions that had nothing to do with basketball. But because I was their coach, they came to me and said, hey, coach, I got to ask you something. And it's totally about something in their life. Mm -hmm. But this is a guy who tells the truth unfiltered. And I think I can bring it to him and get a straight answer. And that's what a lot of young people are looking for is the straight answers. Yeah. You know, it's funny. because I, So I didn't play basketball, obviously. Uh, you can't see because we're we're on radio, but I am not a tall man. Um, but uh, you know, I played football, and you know, one of the things that always kind of struck me um, playing football was, you know, you'd 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 miss a block. I was a defensive lineman. You'd miss a tackle, or if you were on the offensive line, you'd miss a block. And you know that that compartmentalized failure was just something that it's, you know, you'd say, oh, I failed at this, and and it'd be like, well, of course you did. Like there's, you know, there's a bunch of people moving around at the same time. There's going to be a lot of individual instances of failure. Now the thing is, is what did you learn for the next down, 
you know, and, right. and I would suspect that it's the same way in basketball. It's like, ah, oh, turn turn the ball over. I miss a shot. Okay, yeah, that's going to happen. If you're shooting the ball, you might miss it on occasion. But we treat a lot of times, it seems, the workplace or school or something like that where, you know, a, a, an instance of failure is something that you would have to hide or you, could, or you run away from as opposed to something that's just a byproduct of doing something. The, 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 by virtue of you taking action, you're going to make mistakes, and that's how you learn. And you're coming up on your first sales meeting, correct? I am. Yes, so yeah, at Crest, we, yes. We have a ritual every month <laughs> where we have a meeting, and we Skype in all the offices, and we go around. It's legitimately a roundtable where you talk about what you sold. And it could easily be a spreadsheet that gets emailed around, but the purpose of that is goes back 30 years to when Cody first got in the industry. Having you come into a room with your peers and talk about what you sold is accountability and you can't escape that. And so you can hide for a little while, but every 30 days you got to walk into a room and tell people you got a goose egg. You didn't sell anything. I don't, we don't stand over you to make you go work. We don't check your phone. We don't see, check your fear in your office. We don't do any of that, but we do have a meeting every 30 days. And the flip side is true. You go out and sell a whole bunch. You come in that meeting, say what you sold, Nobody cares. You can be posting pictures from Cabo San Lucas, but if you're a successful broker, we don't care because we really don't want you in the office. We want you out selling. So that accountability, hiding that happens in a lot of institutions where people have skills that maybe they're trying to blend in. Well, the company's doing good. So who cares if I don't know how to do this skill or do that skill or, you know, I'm going to have someone else do it. Um, that's a difficult thing because you want your people to feel comfortable enough to come to you to develop how to develop young people, which is America's challenge, not just <laughs> yours. Yeah. It's the challenge of the nation. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, because I, I don't think kids are any different than they were 50, 60 years ago, but they just have a totally different set of challenges than, than the other generations may have had. And I can't imagine what you guys must go through. I hear conversations out of young people that blow my mind, like literally. Why are you talking about that at 11? Why have you seen that at nine years old? Why are you thinking that way at 12? So when you talk about being a mentor to a young person or it's totally different than I can imagine in the professional ranks where you're dealing with adults, because if the adult doesn't pan out, chances are it's their responsibility. They got to fix it. But with kids, um, it's just a whole different ballgame. I'd like to tag on to that if I could, Matt. You know, one thing that uh, we instituted at JTED and through our superintendent is a growth mindset. And that is that mistakes are the way that you learn. So mistakes are a necessary part of life because if you're not making mistakes, you're not growing. And we started this with the staff, but what's interesting is it has gone through to the students and now our students, we're seeing them, that they're embracing this growth mindset. So when we see students out in the field, we'll hear them refer back to those principles of, yeah, I really, you know, I built that construction problem yeah, or, or project completely wrong, but boy, did I learn from it. I'll never do that again. And they, they're exhibiting signs of embracing the growth mindset of that it's okay to make mistakes. We all make mistakes, but is it, are you learning from those mistakes and how will you correct it next time and how will you approach it differently? And I think that plays into mentorship is letting people know that, you know what, life's not going to be perfect. You're not going to be perfect. You're, it's okay to make mistakes. It's how you approach those mistakes and how you rebound and, and come back from them. That's what's key. And, and giving people that confidence that, you know what, it's going to be okay. We're going to solve this and we're, we're going to get through it. And how, how will we do it next time? And so I think those things are key. Yeah, agreed. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, Carlos, we've been talking a lot about you know mentorship and young people, and you know, in an environment, um, you know, like Big Brothers Big Sisters. I mean, you've got a situation where strangers are being pulled together, and it's and it's really it's a relationship that has to evolve very quickly, just by virtue of the amount of time that the mentor has to interface with you know with with the youth. So how does how does that work? And and can you tie that maybe to some of your experience? You know, d developing. Um, a trusting relationship with, you know, whether it's a mentor or an organization to kind of get you to where you're at. 
Yeah, so with Big Brothers Big Sisters and other organizations that I've worked in in mentorship, it was really a joint effort between the volunteer and the mentee. And so in all of the cases that I've been a part of, everybody has to be on the same page and be willing to participate. If you have a youth in there or somebody that's going to get mentored and they don't necessarily want to or they're not open to it, it's not going to be something that's successful and they're not going to be receptive to what they're hearing. And so having that from the start is really important and it allows you to build that relationship pretty quickly uh, because everybody's there for the same thing and for the same reasons. And from personal experience, I have kind of a similar situation um, or a little bit different situation, I would say, to um, some of the people that we've talked to. And then I'm very familiar with the way that the kids grow up from the JTED program and then Big Brothers Big Sisters as well. So at a very young age, at around eight, I was removed from my family. Um, and then moved in with, uh, it was a babysitter at the time, um, and was raised by them up until 18, and we did an adult adoption. But I had other siblings that didn't turn out as successful as I am, and I was always asking as I was growing up, okay, and as I got older, what was different in that relationship that I had with you guys than my siblings who didn't turn out to be as successful and had issues in other areas? And they really said that since that young age, I really had a desire to be different from where I came from. And I was open and receptive to what was happening around me. And a lot of those people that helped raise me are still mentors to me to this day. Um, I go to them whenever I have any job changes or thinking of a career move or just really any kind of personal things in life. And those mentors were brought into my life, um, not by choice. They were there and they were supportive and they helped me out. And I, I correlate that a lot with what I do with Big Brothers Big Sisters and my other organizations that I've worked with. I've always wanted to be there for youth that might have been in the same situation and be able to help and support them in that area. And then coming from the nonprofit side of work, it's an industry to where if you're not going and actively looking for somebody to mentor you, they're not going to be people that come up and say, hey, you look like you're doing really well with this. Let me help you out. Let me kind of guide you. You have to go and you actually have to be the one to initiate those conversations like we were saying. Like Corey was saying, if you go up to somebody that has a $3 million house and how did you get that? I want to be at that point. In some, some point in my life, I want to be able to do that. You have to find that person and that successful person within that nonprofit organization that you can link yourself to and get them to help you grow. Um, in nonprofit organizations, and you guys might be aware of this, turnover is really, really high in those organizations, especially in child welfare and issues where you're dealing with crisis situations and family things. It gets very stressful. And the biggest thing that I took from a lot of that was from those mentors was not necessarily uh, best business practices or those kinds of things, but it was more emotional stability and how to remain in a career that is so stressful and be successful in it over time because burnout is real and if you don't know how to deal with those things it's huge so being able to find people to facilitate that through my nonprofit career was huge and then I had to go out and find other mentors to help me from the business side of things because they might not necessarily be experts in that field but they're experts in the emotional side of things and so having mentors throughout my life and people to guide me has just really been what I've done I didn't even notice that it was something that I was doing until probably five or six years ago that I had all these people lined up for different scenarios and I was using them and um, using their resources and their knowledge for different purposes. But it's huge and having people in my life have really, uh, it's really made an impact and got me to where I am, which is I'm thankful for. Yeah. And Matt, you know, you're in benefits too. So we, we do employee benefits. So we deal with a lot of HR directors and mm -hmm. I can tell you that their biggest challenge is what you just said, burnout and turnover. And I don't care how extensive your onboarding process is or your interview process is, it's never gonna be enough time to gauge someone's desire, someone's ability to ask for help, someone's work ethic. If you're trying to get that in a snapshot in a couple of interviews and a few emails, but you really can't get that picture until that person gets in there and you're like, this is a person that's gonna grow from a, from a two to a 10. You know, because it's in them to do that. This is a person that's going to seek out help. This is a person who takes pride in their work. This is a person who's going to really push themselves. So in the professional realm, mentors are important because uh, HR, they're kind of like zero sum. I hired you, I fire you. If you don't pan out, we move on. Mm -hmm. But the mentor says this is someone who probably, if left to their own devices, might get let go. But I'm going to step in and help. And that helps the company. And so it's, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge factor. Yeah. It's less expensive to help mentor somebody than train a new employee. Absolutely. So there you go. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
You know, I'm reminded, um, and it's it's funny because you were talking about, big, you know, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, obviously, and, and really, I think the, the community services industry as a whole, human services industry as a whole, um, nonprofit and non, or nonprofit and for profit. I mean, it's it's a mission driven industry, right? Um, and so I'm reminded of um, actually, uh, you know, so in my <laughs> in my three weeks now at, at Crest, I've been in the industry for for 15 years, but in my three weeks now at Crest. Um, you know, Cody, the first time I met him uh, a little over a year ago, he had a saying that I really latched on to. And, uh, and it was something that I, it seems like he's really infused throughout the organization. But um, I think it's a, it's a good mission statement. It's if we do well, then we can do good. And, and that seems to have a correlation to mentorship where, you know, it's, it's kind of this evergreen tree, right? That, that basically if as a mentor, if or basically as somebody who's searching for a mentor, when you develop that level of success in your life because of the mentors that um, that inspired you and you're able to turn around and, and give back, I mean, it's it's basically by creating success, it creates more success. And so when I think about Tucson as a community and, and really how many organizations here either touch mentorship or have made it central to their mission – um, it seems like if we're if we're looking for, as Corey, you said, the, the secret sauce, I mean, it really seems to be in developing that sort of a culture within your organization. So, you know, for each of you, if, if you think back on instances where an organization you've been a part of has been either highly successful or, or perhaps even highly unsuccessful at cultivating an environment where people can develop and you can get that evergreen cycle of mentorship, success, development. What what do you feel has been the secret sauce in doing that? We've talked about trust um, and it seems like above and beyond trust, there has to be an element of candor, um, honesty. Do you feel that there's a system to it? Is it something where you feel it's better to, to let it just kind of happen organically where you don't have a structural mentorship process? Or is it something that you feel you have to be intentional doing in, in an organization? And maybe, Greg, we'll start with you. You seem to, you seem well, to be we, nodding we, along. Well, we, yeah, <laughs> I, I totally agree with it. And I think that um, part of it, you know, I'm in an organization now that is highly successful and we're doing great work because mentorships are allowed to take place. And um, part of it is sometimes we get into a scarcity factor and people don't want to share what they have because they think, well, gee, if I share this, then you'll have it. And when you're talking about the secret sauce of mentorship, it's about it's not about that. My mentors never cared that if I knew as much or more than they did, they never cared whether I became more successful or not than they were because they were very self-confident in what they do. And they're very good at what they do. And, and it wasn't about that. And I think if you put that aside and you're very generous with your knowledge, um, that goes a long way for the entire organization. As Corey said, you know, about helping those players earlier, it, it helped him because they became a better team. And that just helps everybody. It comes back to you. And some of my mentors, I had dinner recently with one of mine, and I picked up the check, and he's like, no, no, no. And I said, yeah. I said, you don't understand all that you've done for me. And he's like, oh, you know, I said something halfway intelligent maybe once or twice. And I'm like, no, but it was it was much more than that. And so I think sometimes we give advice and we share our, our you know, knowledge with people and we don't even understand what the impact that it's going to have on somebody. I once had a kid, you know, working with me and um, he had these horrible red bumps on his face. And I said, how are you shaving? And he told me, and I'm like, no, you're doing it. You know, and I just, but then he came back years later and he said, you were more of a father figure to me than my own dad. And I was blown away. And I'm like, well, what? And he said, you taught me how to shave. And it was something so simple yeah. that, you know, it was just a life skill that this kid didn't have. And so it's amazing what people will remember years from now that we might even just say, and really being a mentor is not difficult because you're just giving your experience and advice and you're sharing that. And most of us do want to share that with others. And at JTED, that's promoted. And we're looking at formalizing it more. We're bringing in more people from business and industry so that we can increase our network because we do realize, you know, our teachers cannot mentor 30 people at once that's just not really if you're really not doing it right if you know that's the way but that's why we're bringing in more people in from business and industry to help make those connections we recently had a skills event for construction about 200 construction students about 15 construction companies were there 
And they were starting to see students and mentor the students who wanted that help with some of their skills. And that's that whole event is to develop those mentor-mentee relationships. And these guys are just giving advice. You know, they're seeing kids out there and they're like, hey, you're really good at this. You're really good at electrical. You're really good at plumbing. You've got a knack for this. You want to learn more, you know? And it's kind of that thing, too. The mentor and the mentee have to be receptive to it or it's not going to work. But for those that are hungry, and like I was when I was in my 20s, um, when you're hungry for that, it's gold. And it stays with you forever. You really appreciate it forever. And I hope that the mentors out there know that. Agreed. How about you, Corey? Well, there's a couple of things. First, I wanted to touch on something. It's almost, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to become successful without some semblance of an ego. I don't think, I think that's something that all successful people share. They care about their performance, how they look. They have some type of ego. That ego sometimes does not lend you to being, it doesn't automatically make you a good mentor. It actually can have the reverse effect. If you've got too much ego, then you're not going to be good at mentoring someone else because it's just not in your DNA. So, uh, you know, look at Michael Jordan. He's the worst NBA GM and owner in the history of the NBA. <laughs> and But as a competitor, there was, you know, it, it was all ego. It was self-driven. He's very successful. Um, but in terms of creating a culture, I think in any situation where you've got a, a tremendous amount of success, whether it's in sports or in business, you step into a situation where you automatically understand that it's about more than the work here at this place. It's about more than the championship. It's about more than the team. There's always some underlying culture where it's not about insurance. It's not about car sales. It's not about football. It's about something else. And a good mentor, a good leader promotes that culture. Um, we happen to prevent, we, we feel like we're a family. A lot of people feel like their businesses are a family, but true families, you're part of a family that sells insurance. You're part of a family that sells cars. You're part of a family that runs a restaurant. You're part of a family. So people bring that extra something to work and it creates the environment of trust where people can ask questions and people can teach and no one's being judged because that's the family atmosphere that a lot of people remember from their actual families. I go somewhere where everything's kind of accepted. Um, developing a culture and where people feel like, um, like at Crest, we consider ourselves and we're a pirate ship. <laughs> we're a bunch of guys. Everybody's out for themselves. Nobody makes the same amount of money. You make whatever you go out and get. So how do you keep a pirate ship afloat? How do you keep it sailing when everybody on the ship is out for themselves and they're all pirates? And there's really no code of ethics among pirates. You know what I mean? <laughs> but as an agency, you have to steer this ship of guys who have alpha males with egos that want to sell. How do you keep them together? How do you keep them thinking about themselves and the team at the same time? Um, I'm proud to say that we've done a great job of that at Crest. Guys know that they're part of a team. If I have success with an account, I'm, and I'm going to share that with you so you have a success, the same success, I'm not going to get your paycheck, but I don't care. We're on the same team. So when you walk into a room and you land an account or you're successful, that reflects on me. That culture, that's the only type of person we hire. And if you don't fit into that, if you don't understand that, then it's not a good fit for you. And we got a lot of people who just churn and burn. They just want to come in, don't want to speak, do my job, give me my money. Maybe this isn't the agency for you because you may have a younger broker or someone that comes with, hey, I had that same problem. What did you do? Well, I don't got time to talk to you. I got to go to a meeting and I'll be back later. It's not the kind of guy we want. And um, Cody's done an outstanding job of picking people who want to be successful, but peak, but they want to be successful in a team framework. And it's a challenge. It's really hard because that's a rare type of person that wants individual success, but will take the time to teach, to answer questions, to share to learn. I mean, we got guys that have been in industry 40 years. They've forgotten more about insurance than we'll ever know. And I can knock on their door, walk in and ask them a stupid question. And they'll look at me for a couple of seconds and be like, you know, you're supposed to know this, right? <laughs> and then they'll tell me. But it's like working in the Library of Congress of insurance because everyone will share all their information. Um, and you're not going to take any food off their plate. So that's that culture of um, more than insurance, more than business, more than work, being a part of a team. It sounds cliche. It sounds corny, but that's the difference between the top organizations and the rest. Getting that extra level of commitment, that extra level of comfort, 
out of your employees, it really does make a difference because then you don't have the turnover issues. Who leaves a company where they actually feel like they've got 50 people that have their back every day? I can't make it in. I'm sick. Can you cover my meeting? Sure. I got to go pick up my kid. That's okay. We'll see you tomorrow. You know, my, my daughter's sick. When you live in that environment versus some of these other corporate environments, you don't have a retention problem. Yeah, and I, I look at it as building a culture of growth both personally personally and professionally. And I participate in a lot of Tucson Young Professional events, and that's one of the big things that they try and harp on is how do we keep young professionals in Tucson? And I think that a lot of ways it's just providing that path and that opportunity for them to say, okay, this, if I want to be here in five years, this is what I need to do. This is kind of where I can model that after and who I can talk to about it. But then also a lot of young professionals are looking for that personal growth as well. And if companies aren't providing that, they're going to go find somebody that is. Yeah, agreed. So, you know, as we, as we start to wind down here, um, just wanted to shift the focus slightly to you know, what somebody who's listening might be able to do in terms of mentorship. I mean, obviously, you know, there's the opportunity to step up in your respective organizations and say, hey, you know, I want to, we've got somebody who's new to our organization. I want to make sure they get up to speed quickly, make sure that they're successful because it makes the team better. So I'm going to step up and, and volunteer and help guide that person. But outside of that, you know, I've Maybe, Carlos, we'll start with you with uh, with Big Brothers Big Sisters. You know, we've talked a bit about the Mentor 2.0 program. We've talked about um, the traditional Big Brother uh, or Big Sister program. Um, you know, if somebody wanted to, if, they, if they're hearing this and they say, you know what, that's something I'd like to get involved in, how would they do that? Yeah, it's super simple. You just got to go to our website, www.soazbigs.org. Click on the program that you would like or just a volunteer tab and we can get all the information that you would need. Obviously, you need to pass some background checks to be able to work with children, but then we would facilitate it based on your experience, your likes and needs as to what program you'd go into and who you'd be matched with. It's a very simple process, but we're very intentional on how we match the youth with volunteers. It's something that we spend a lot of time with and we want to make sure that it's most successful for the families and all involved. Yeah, and you know, it's it's kind of one of those things where I know one of the common concerns when somebody looks at mentoring in general, right? Volunteering in general, maybe it's, uh, you know, I'm not sure what, how how do I make the time or how to, you know, how do I get over it? I don't necessarily know that I'm the person that should be, you know, in a position to mentor. I mean, how have how has the organization successfully worked around that? I mean, the time commitment is something. I know there's a structural program that sets it up where the commitment is manageable. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm a pretty pretty busy guy, and I've I've found the ability to do it. Um, but how has the organization built a system around that? And, and is that something that you think could be mirrored elsewhere in terms of, you know, scheduling and being intentional about your mentorship and kind of planning it out, having, having a program or a curriculum? Yeah. And so the most time that you're required to spend with a little brother or little sister through our program is just four hours a month, either in person or like mentor 2.0, two in person and then two online. So it's a very minimal time commitment. And what we do for the majority of our programs is allow you to schedule that with the family. So if you do have a busy schedule, it's something that you get to plan with that family to make it as easy as it possibly can be for you. And I think that if you're looking into putting that into a professional standpoint from organizationally, um, just asking somebody, if you're looking for mentorship, say, hey, can I have an hour of your time maybe a month? It's not a lot of time, but that time can really impact you and what you're looking for and what you're trying to get out of. And then, so Greg, same thing for uh, for Pima County JTED. I mean, I know we've um, I, I'm on the Business and Industry Council, uh, so that's right. a that's a group of business owners that come in um, about once a quarter, and we kind of sit down, we get some exposure for the different programs JTED has, and uh, you know, lend some expertise from each of our respective industries. But um, if somebody was interested in the JTED and maybe they're somebody that runs a business in the trades and would be interested in teaching or something like that, how would they find out more? How can they get involved in the, in the JTED? Very similar. They can uh, make initial contact through our website. It's uh, Pima, P-I-M-A, J-T-E-D dot org. And uh, just let us know what you're looking for. All of those kind of come to my email box and I will pair you up uh, the right way. Depends on the level of involvement that you'd like. You mentioned the Business and Industry Advisor, Advisory Council. They are mentoring us as teachers and administrators on what we should be doing in our programs for the students' benefit to enter the workforce most successfully. But then we do have uh, opportunities for businesses to work directly with students, and we have many in the healthcare professions and construction industries. As you can imagine, the trades are all begging for people, and it's great that they're starting to see that if we open up uh, internship and externship opportunities, 
those are more formalized and those lead to internship as well, but they are more formalized areas where students can um, come in, receive career advice, see what it's like. And also it gives business owners the opportunity to meet our students and see if there's a good fit for a, you know, a working relationship that's the ongoing career. So there's many different levels that businesses can be involved. Okay. And then, Corey, you know, I know we're, uh, as, as we're sailing the pirate ship around, I mean, it's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you're willing to pick up an oar and, uh, and you're interested in the insurance industry, um, you know, certainly, I mean, Crest is, uh, is a great agency. Yeah. Um, but uh, also with, you know, with your youth sports program, I mean, if somebody wanted to learn more about it, if they wanted to participate in it, how, how would they find you? Well, um, our, we're online, TucsonSPL.com. It's our website. Uh, we get a lot of contact from parents and volunteers and uh, we do an internship program with the Pasquayaki tribe where we take 20 teenagers every year. Um, we hire them and bring them down to the gym and they do everything from concessions to ushers to laundry to, to scorer's table to water and towels and maintenance. And they have a great time and they make a lot of money during the summer. But uh, yeah, uh, TucsonSPL.com is our website and they can find us there. And, you know, to Greg's point. Um, you never know. Uh, be open and think more of yourself because you never know who you may affect. Um, you may do something that seems pretty insignificant, but it may turn out to mean a whole lot to someone else. And we try to keep that in mind. Um, I remember last year at the pirate ship, one of our account managers just emailed out a spreadsheet she had worked on. Hey, guys, if you ever need this. And it was like it was a godsend. It saved us thousands of man hours in terms of spreadsheeting. And it was just something that she threw out there and it ended up being helpful. So, uh, you know, don't be afraid to step out there and, and do something because you never know it could affect someone in a big way. Yeah, great. Well, Greg, Corey, Carlos, thank you so much. Uh, and everybody listen, appreciate your time. And uh, look forward to uh, seeing everybody next month. This is uh, Culture at Work in Tucson. And this is Matt Nelson signing off. Join Matt for another interesting Culture at Work podcast right here on Tucson Business Radio X dot com.